Welcome to Through the Glass Recovery Podcast, where we believe that connection is the opposite of addiction, vulnerability is the antidote to shame, and that recovery isn't just rewarding, but also a lot of fun. We're your hosts, Julie and Steve. Listen as we get together with friends to shed light on the hard things, talk about the other side of addiction, and how we create a life so full there's no space left for alcohol. Have you ever just felt stuck in your recovery? Then you're going to love this episode. We talk about everything from learning how to ask for help to understanding that your needs and tools evolve with your recovery. We discuss dealing with boredom and sobriety, and we talk about how exciting it can be to face the hard things, knowing something great will be on the other side. Before we get started, I just want to let you all know that Steve and I have an Instagram account. You can find us on Instagram at Through the Glass Recovery. We share all kinds of extra content, videos, thoughts, and bios of our guests, and we would love to connect with you. Also, for the month of February, Steve and I are hosting a sober self-love challenge on Instagram. I think a lot of us struggle with showing ourselves enough love, and February seemed like a great month to really focus on that. So join us on Instagram, where we'll post a daily challenge for you to try and share your experiences, and we'll also be posting all kinds of probably slightly ridiculous pictures and videos of ourselves, so it should be thoroughly entertaining. We're here tonight with Kelsey, Melissa, and Dan. I'm going to have you guys do some introductions. Kelsey, do you want to go first? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Kelsey. I am 14 months sober. I started documenting my entire journey my first year on TikTok and created a little community there and like fell in love talking about sobriety and what I've learned so far and helping other people along along their journey not feel so alone. I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. Really glad you're here. Thanks for coming back. If yeah. you want to send me your TikTok stuff, I will put it in the show notes so everybody can get in touch with you there too. Cool. We'll do that. Great. And, and Melissa, how are you tonight? I'm great. Thanks for having me and thanks for doing this. I am just coming up on 10 months sober now and very passionate about doing the work, went from chronic relapser to this stint that we've had. And it's definitely been different with some different tools and part of the I Am Sober community as well. That's where I met you two hosts. And <laughs> yeah, so I'm from North Carolina and I'm happy to be here. Really cool to have you here. It has been a pleasure watching your journey. You have so much wisdom to share. So thank you for sharing with us and for sharing with everybody. And last but not least, we have Dan, who is back for, I don't know how many times you've been here, but it's really nice to see you again. At least three. It's always a joy to be here, though. I'm always happy when you ask me to come on. But I am Dan. I have been sober for 33 months, closing in three years in March. For me, I would say that, uh, you know, connection and introspection has been the most important part of getting sober and staying sober for me. The two things I used to avoid, like the plague, are the things that I, I hold on to now. Truth. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, congrats on almost three years. That's amazing. I remember when you hit two years and I just thought that was the most incredible thing. Like I could not even imagine what that must feel like. And now here you're coming up on three. So yeah, really good to have you here. For our topic tonight, I think it's really common for someone to get to 30 days or 60 or 90 days and start to feel stuck. 
Not drinking becomes fairly easy. And then they start wondering what now? I think it's dangerous to get stuck there for too long because not having forward momentum can lead us right back to drinking if we're not careful. So tonight's topic is what now? What did it look like for you when you reached that point? And what have you done to keep forward momentum in your recovery? What do you do when you feel stuck? I think that at different points I felt stuck. And I think by the time I hit 30 days, I was really just so glad to be at 30 days that it really didn't matter how how quickly I was moving forward. The fact that I had made it 30 days when in my mind, I never believed I'd make it through day three. You know, I was just sitting on the pink cloud for that reason alone. I just was so thrilled to be there and it, it made it all look possible. I, I think the first really big stoppage I had was when I hit about a year. I was closing it right around a year. Yeah. And it just, was one of those moments. And I think I, I forgot to continue to work the program the way that I had designed it to be. And, you know, I, I'd forgotten to take life one day at a time. And I had really stopped re- doing outreach work and doing, continuing to journal and be introspective. And it all kind of got reset for me because I reached out and somebody from the IAS group said, are you taking life one day at a time right now? Do you think you are? And I, immediately in that moment had to go no (laughs) no you're right i'm not and it made me stop and reevaluate everything i'm doing and so whenever i feel that kind of stoppage in development now it reminds me right away that you know what what got me out of that before and that was connection that was reaching out Mm -hmm. being vulnerable and, and allowing myself to ask for help you know it's an honor to be asked for help and it's important to ask for help too and it's one is much easier than the other for me what helped me at least maybe not get stuck because i ran in that pink cloud for a long time i i ran in that pink cloud for good probably the 90 days plus a little bit more i felt really good but because i didn't know what the work really looked like but i was surrounded with community and the vulnerability and I was always trying to put effort into it, even though I didn't know what it looked like. It was like, okay, I'll just tell my truth, right? That's that's good. I'll start here. I'll tell my truth and then go from there. And the work was basically mimicking what I saw someone else doing. So somebody else was doing the work because they had a problem that I didn't know I had. And it allowed me to reflect on that. So when I've been stuck, it's been the connection, like you said, Dan, or and, and, and staying in tune with our people because sometimes it's just helping somebody else that helps you realize that you need the help too. And it allows you to ask yourself the hard questions that you never thought you had to ask to help keep pushing that forward momentum. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting you guys both talk about community. And for me, the first time I quit drinking, I lasted over a year and it was with no community. It was with no direction. It was with no wisdom or guidance of any kind. I just quit drinking. And I remember feeling like, I mean, it did, it got to the point where it was easy not to drink. I'm like, there's got to be more than this because I feel like 
I could fall back into it any at any moment. And I just, I don't know, it felt like there was something else I was supposed to be doing. I didn't know what that looked like though. So I actually went to a therapist and I talked to her and she gave me a little bit of guidance. She was wonderful, but didn't, didn't have a lot of experience in addiction, didn't know the things that I needed to hear. And so eventually I ended up drinking again. And I think a the main reason for that was I wasn't doing any work. I didn't know what that looked like. The goal now being, I need to create a life that doesn't make me want to drink, that I don't want to escape from. And I don't think I even understood that concept. It was just, how do I get through this one thing without drinking? And then how do I get through this next thing without drinking? It wasn't, how do I change my life into something that doesn't keep making me want to drink? And it took relapsing and then coming back, clawing my way out of the relapse, and then meeting a community of people to kind of start that thought process and and change my thought process to that. And then for me, what the game changer was actually the book Rewired, Erica Spiegelman, that I know a lot of us are familiar with. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I opened that book and started reading. I got to the, the first set of questions about authenticity. And I was like, oh my God, there's so much I did not know about myself. Like my everything changed when I got to that point and I got really honest because, you know, she's asking you to ask yourself really hard questions that are really uncomfortable to answer. And I just went for it and I was journaling through everything. That's when I realized this is what I was missing the first time around. This is, this is what forward progress actually looks like instead of just you know, white knuckling it through the next thing and then through the next thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm similar to Dan, like around my one year mark, maybe 10 months, I was like, I stopped counting days. I stopped paying attention to it. I was just kind of in this like la la land where I was like, I'm fine. I can do it. And then I would go to a wedding or something and it would be like a slap in the face. Like it would be like, Oh, I don't have boundaries. I don't know how to hold a boundary. Like I need to leave this place immediately and like go work on this. And I feel like every time I feel like I'm in this place of like, I'm good, I'm doing great. Like I don't think about drinking. Something happens that reminds me that, oh, you you definitely still have a lot to work on. And for you to drink would be to be giving all of it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. It's it's interesting that you say that. Kelsey, like I coming up on 10 months now, this is the this is the longest stint I've ever had. And for me, like much kind of like Dan, it was like kind of the whole like, am I living in the present moment? And you live in so many present moments and you start to kind of forget what it felt like to have that mental obsession all the time. And to I don't know if if you all struggled with this because like it took me a while to finally accept that this was the the type of I, I claim the title addict because I totally am like, like walking into a room like that at a party and just being aware of every single alcoholic beverage in the room. Mm-hmm. And anytime that I don't show up to those things and all this time elapses and I think that I'm totally fine, I'll walk into one of those rooms and every now and again, I'll just be like, whoop. Yep. Still an addict. <laughs> Last time I checked, like still an addict. Yeah. And, um, and it's funny because it's sneaky. Like it just, Every time I think I have a handle on it, something will remind me that I'm still there. And and for me in the first 30, 60, 90 days, like I 
Fortunately, my dad is recovered. And so I could talk to him about it. And he told me, he's like, watch out for these three markers. And I, at that point in time, had been, you know, working a program, talking to Steve a whole bunch because Steve was actually the first person I called the very last time that I relapsed. And, and I did, I started feeling emotionally super squirrely around that time. And it was like, I, I don't, even really know how to describe it. It's kind of like this itch that I would start to get. And I almost think that it's like, for some of us, just the act of getting sober feels like this achievement. It's like, yep, checked it off the box. So now I get to celebrate because I know I'm not that bad. I just made it 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. And then once I had gotten past those three milestones, getting to, for me, like the six month mark was actually the hardest between six and eight months, it was just like nothing was happening. I was bored. I felt like I didn't have anything to work towards. The pink cloud was gone. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that I could do was reflect back on that first phone call that I had with Steve and then immediately calling my sponsor and talking with her about how bad things had gotten because it's so easy to forget how bad things got. No matter how bad my worst day is sober, it is nothing compared to my best day while I was drinking, not even close. So it's like I have to constantly go back to that and remember that moderation is just not available to me no matter what. So that's like even when I want to negotiate in those moments and I feel like I have nothing else to cling to in terms of coping mechanisms, I'm like, this is just not a negotiable at all. Right. I think that's so I the second time I quit drinking, I didn't get a pink cloud. <laughs> it just didn't exist for me, which was really disappointing after the first time. But it's those little things that come up and you're like, there's no coping mechanism. Right. I, I have to figure out how to get through this. And I think what I've started to realize is the whole idea when we talk about the work, it's learning how to get through these different situations so that eventually our natural response to them is a healthy one. Mm -hmm. And everything that would come up, first, I would completely lose my mind. Then I would want to drink. Then I would white knuckle it through it. And then I would try to journal. And then I would try to talk about it. And I would be crying. And I would be like, it would be like this production to try to get through it. And eventually I would. And I've had, you know, I've been through four or five or 10 similar situations. And each time it gets just a little bit easier. And then eventually something will happen. And my response is just completely healthy. Like, this is frustrating. I'm okay. And I like, I've learned how to do all of that work enough that now those things that used to set me over the edge, I just respond to them like a healthy, emotionally healthy person. And I think that I guess in the end, is kind of the goal of all the work is just that my emotional responses become healthy ones instead of the ones that drive me to want to drink again. Well, that's all part of the work too, right? You have the smallest thing creates this explosion of a reaction because you don't know what to do with it anymore. So, and then you get through that moment and the next time, because you've done something, you've gotten through it, it's a little bit easier and in those early days, like you said, everything felt like it was kind of a production. Like the highs were super high. They were awesome. And the lows really freaking sucked. And so did boredom because I didn't know what to do 
in the boredom and to fill it with i mean i i, I baked bread and i baked a lot of bread it was like it was it was my thing and i I made a lot of bread for a long time and I realized that it wasn't just to fill boredom. It was actually a safe place for me too, inside the house. It was something I had control over and it was something that allowed me to contribute, but it still, there was weekends where I made three loaves of bread in one day <laughs> because it, it filled that void and it worked for me. There was other things that I would do, you know, mowing the lawn didn't, didn't do me any good. Going for a walk didn't do me any good. Spending time with the kids didn't do me any good. It didn't stop the mess of, the, I called it the chaos of nothing because there was nothing there. It was, it was, that's the, like, what am I going to do with all of this free time, mental energy that I spent figuring out how I was going to get my next drink? Mm -hmm. All alcohol related, all when am I going to get my next drink? When am I going to uh, buy the next bottle of booze? Where am I going to hide it? Where, where, what store am I going to go to next? How am I going to generate this lie so I can go to the store because I'm running low? Like uh, the whole life was, my whole life was consumed with trying to figure out it was all booze related. So once that disappears, it's, it's, now what am I going to do with all of this mental energy? There's so much mental free space that's freed up. And I filled a lot of that with mucking around, making bread, but also I filled it with a lot of sobriety. I filled it with a lot of sobriety things. I went to a lot of meetings. There are people that listen to a lot of podcasts. I didn't, not in the early days. I was just, I kind of immersed myself in sobriety. I immersed myself in going to the meetings. They were they felt very freeing. It was finally a space where I could talk about the things that were rolling around in my head and it gave it a spot to actually exist. Mm -hmm. and I, it, mm -hmm. I found what, when I gave even the nothingness, even the emptiness that I'm bored, it, it let me practice what self-awareness looks like. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, I think that's such an important part, Steve, because when I share my story, I hear it so often, like, I get so bored 30 days, 60 days, I'm so bored. How do I fill the time? What do I do? And like, boredom is okay. I don't mm -hmm. know where we all got this idea that like, you can't ever be bored. But like, I took so many baths. So that I was so bored that like, my like, supervisor of my building had to come in because the it was leaking through the floor. And I was like, listen, I'm just trying to stay sober, okay? But it's okay to be bored. And eventually you start to learn about yourself and like what you like. I did 30 days of trying something new every single day, something small, something big. It didn't matter. But like I wrote with chalk. I started to paint. I just started to learn about who I was when like I had spent hours just sitting at bars talking about nothing with strangers. And it was like, it's okay to to not do that and be bored for a little and just be an introvert. Who cares? Stay at home, like say no to stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's people struggle with it so much. And it, I think it's it's really important to to talk about that piece. I did uh, 90, I did 90 meetings in 90 days, which I was so resistant to doing. I was so resistant to it. And once I realized that when I would sit in that endless void of boredom, 
of that boredom that we're talking about. And I would, I would start to get that squirrely feeling again. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, I have nothing to do right now. I would flip my computer open and just go to like a women's international marathon meeting, like whatever I could find, I would check into them as many of them as I possibly could. And what's so interesting, like, I don't go to that many meetings anymore. I'll probably go like once a week. And I find that like, as as I learn more about myself, my toolbox changes. So I started freaking out after those 90 days because I had committed to going to a meeting every day for 90 days. And once the 90 days was up, I was like, oh no, what's the next thing? And much like Kelsey, like I had to have a new mountain to climb because that helped me to stay focused on something. So, you know, then I started focusing on weightlifting. That became another thing. So I was like, whenever I would feel a certain type of way, I'd look up a video on it or I'd go to the gym or, you know, just anything. And as, as the time's gone for me, it like the toolbox changes and I have to be okay with the toolbox changing and not panicking because it changes <laughs> because I change. It's adapting to that change, right? It's big time and allowing that to be accept- acceptable. Mm-hmm. That's something I talk about often when I host meetings is, um, is uh, how you know, sobriety evolves and changes over time. What I needed in the first 90 days is not what I need now. And that's okay to recognize that. In the first 90 days, I went to more than one meeting almost every day, you know, sometimes even three. And so it was easy to look at myself and to let that internal dialogue start to play. You have you only went to three meetings last week. Are you getting complacent? Mm-hmm. Well, no, I'm not getting complacent. What happened is is that that white knuckling for nine first ninety days is is over, and I'm ready to start doing different kind of work now. I'm ready to start doing that introspective work. Anything that ever got depressed or numbed by alcohol. It's now coming to the surface and I have to deal with it. Sometimes a meeting helps me get through that. And sometimes journaling will help me get through that. And so over the course of time, I just had to recognize what my needs were and then to focus on that and to realize that it was okay to admit the day was going to be awful. And it was okay to say that I could get through this. And that's been the, the, the truest gift is to go into a kind of a dark place for a while. And realized that when I came out on the other side, I was way, way stronger in my sobriety than I was when I went into it. And I thought I was feeling great. So things come up every so often for me. You get that squirmy feeling and you're like, oh, shit, there's something I need to work on. Mm-hmm. You can feel it, right? Mm-hmm. Like it just feels uncomfortable. And I'm almost to the point where sometimes I kind of like it. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't feel good. And sometimes it can be pretty shitty, but then I'm like, Ooh, there's like potential here to grow and I'm going to learn something. And there's some part of me that actually appreciates that. That sounds really twisted to say like, Ooh, I like it when I'm suffering, but I can just appreciate the potential in it. And I can look at it and instead of just fall into that, like the self-pity, why me? This is so awful. This isn't fair. I can look at it as there's something to be learned here. And then I get to dig into it. And it's almost like another little mini adventure in learning about myself Mm -hmm. that usually turns out to be something kind of cool or something freeing or lets me get over something that I've been struggling with. And it feels really good on the other side. 
Mm-hmm. What you're describing is like we drank because there was some part of ourselves that we weren't ad- addressing or listening to. And it's like that squirrely feeling is information. Mm-hmm. And really, if you if you look at the big picture of what every single person here has said, it's like this journey is really about getting to know yourself. It's about learning who you are and how you respond to things and getting really, really honest with yourself. And if you can dig into that work, it is a really exciting adventure. Like I have this amazing mentor that that talks about it's like warrior philosophy he has. He's really into that kind of stuff. And he'll he'll talk about how like a like a warrior sees an opportunity for a challenge and meets that. And you get excited because there's there's something on the other side of it. And that's we can almost in a way kind of look at this journey of sobriety as like meeting a warrior challenge bravely because every single second of sobriety is magic. You're Mm -hmm. doing something really freaking brave and really difficult to do. And I think people forget that sometimes, you know, it's a brave thing to like get to know yourself. It's scary. (laughs) It is. And I hadn't really realized at all how much I didn't know myself when I started this journey. And, and that really became a, a theme of early sobriety is who is Dan? Mm-hmm. You know, what do, what do I like? Because I, you know, I, I really couldn't think of a time when I, you know, wasn't an alcoholic at all or a problem drinker. So I had to come back to this place and kind of find myself again as that teenage boy and start to rebuild from there. And that's, it's been a fun journey. And, you know, I, I used to think, oh, it'd be great when I figure out who I am and I can work them. But the fact is the work will never be done. Or when I take my last breath, it will be. Till then, I get to keep growing and exploring. It's just like the toolbox, right? That toolbox has to adapt and change because you're adapting and changing. Your surroundings are changing. You're, you're growing. That lens changes, so it doesn't look the same way it used to, even though your surroundings are identical. What did we do when we were drinking? We always looked forward to the next drink. When you stop having that, you have to give yourself something else to look forward to. A lot of that was the meeting, the chance to to talk, to say something vulnerable, because Jesus Christ, I wasn't ever really, I never said anything vulnerable. It was all just surface junk. And now I actually get to be real. This it was kind of it was kind of neat. It was novel. I get to sit here and I get to just blurt out exactly what I'm thinking and be accepted for it. Odd concept, <laughs> completely foreign <laughs> concept. <laughs> I can say what I'm thinking, and I'm not, and I'm not going to feel like a complete tool because that's generally how I felt. But that journey of kind of what like what Julie says was can i can i can i say the words that burn that come out of my mouth and and then survive it get through it and see it on the other side and figure out another part of steve cuz that was fun that every every little nugget like you said melissa was like that pain or whatever those that it's like a little lesson you know find the lesson in in inside the event the uncomfortable and then it's it's another screwdriver, it's another screw, it's another nail, it's it's another tool that I can use to for maybe tomorrow, maybe I'll never use it again, maybe I just needed it for that moment. But 
it's a treat to be able to actually face life on life's terms instead of just mm. drink it away and not deal with it at all because it always comes back if I don't deal with it. Right. I think the big first step, going back to what you said about vulnerability, the first big piece of work that I did came from the authenticity chapter of Rewired, but it was letting down the perfectionism mask. And the first time I like let somebody else see a flaw. And I mean, I showed up in a meeting and kind of owned it. I don't even remember what it was. I think it was like, I was talking about trying to mold my children into these little people that made me look good, which is so twisted and was exactly what I was trying to do because it was part of the perfectionism picture. And to be able to talk about that and own that this is what I'm doing. Like this is, this feels gross. It still feels gross to talk about it, but that's where, like, that was one of the first really big pieces of work for me was to take those things that were, that felt kind of gross and just own it and come to find out I wasn't the only person that was doing things like that. And then that takes the shame away. And then I can start not doing that because I realize I don't have to look perfect. And I found other flaws and I started talking about those. And every time I started talking about them, like I'd recognize them and you have to be so honest with yourself. Like it is painful to write down something like that. And then to say it out loud to other people, that does not feel good, especially when you've done everything you can to maintain that perfect image for so long. But that was where there was so much freedom in letting the perfectionism go and then starting to look at who I really was and then getting to to own that and learn how to love that, even with flaws. Yeah. You know, I think that I stayed, uh, you know, I avoided getting help for so long too because I felt unredeemable. That I was so far gone, what was the point anymore? I mean, that was clearly the addict voice talking and not me talking. As we get into authenticity, you know, authentic me knew what the right thing to do was, and I knew it for a long time before I actually was ready to act upon it. And and that was the the benefit of going to my first meeting. I I blurted it all out. I told my, I told, I said it all. Mm -hmm. I, I was as vulnerable as I'd ever been in my whole adult life, and nobody made a face at me. All they told me was that I was in the right place and that the good news was I never had to feel like this again. And that really gave me a lot of hope. And at that early point when I was, you know, just trying to find a way to the liquor store, it really, it really meant everything. And those words kept me sober that day. Yeah, that's that daily inventory for me was so important at the beginning and being able to share that out loud with people because it takes the juice out of the reasons for drinking. Like, your shame can't live in the light. Molly told me that one time. And Mm. for the first time in my entire life, because of the community and because of the ability to be that open and painfully honest with myself and everyone around me, I don't have anything to hide. I'm not Mm -hmm. living two lives anymore. I'm not drinking by myself and acting like I'm perfect in public. I 
can show up to a, a with a group of people and say the scariest things and have them be like, it's cool, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't have to carry that weight anymore. And it's amazing how much more space I have to just stretch out and grow because I don't have to hide it. And that's cool. <laughs> You're not carrying the weight of it anymore. It doesn't have to exist. As soon as you let it go, as soon as you take it out of your head, and you give it to someone else, you don't have to carry it anymore. Yeah. You can't write the story or rewrite the story or turn it into something that it isn't mm-hmm. once you've given it away. And there's, there's, there's so much of a beauty in that. It just lets you let it go. That space that you talk about, Melissa. I, uh, yep. Yeah. I, I know it's so difficult for, for people to finally say these things out loud or talk about it out loud. And I lived in purgatory because I refused to say anything out loud to anyone that was truthful. And I would sit around and be alone and be like, why am I so alone? Why isn't anyone like me? Why can't anyone understand me? And it was because no one had any idea what I was going through. No one had a chance to make me not feel alone or feel like I was helpless or anything because it was just all here in my head. I never spoke it out loud. And then when I finally did, and I went to my first, I'm in a women's uh, sober group and I showed up and like spilt my truth. And everybody was like, cool. I was in jail three weeks ago. Like, welcome to the club. You know, it was just like this group of honest people that made me not feel ashamed and let me finally be honest. And there's so much liberation in that in having that community. And that's like, that's the other piece too, is like understanding that at the beginning, you really have to get clear on the safe spaces and the safe people to share that kind of stuff with, because I would try to, I full disclosure, I work as a beer rep, like that's my day job (laughs) and I've managed to do this, but going to other people that are doing the same things or people that don't see what you're doing in secret and saying this stuff out loud to them you're probably not going to get the response because they don't have the tools to hold the space. And they're probably not ready to admit that to themselves if that's what they're struggling with. And that's their own journey. But to show up to a group of other people that are in that same space that can hold the space safely, it's like safe vulnerability is really important at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like really holding that that piece super close and 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 recognizing too that if there are people that can't hold that space it doesn't mean that they're bad people or that they love you any less it's just those aren't the people to share that kind of stuff with like <laughs> i had to share that in my sober groups only for the first however long you know for the first bits yeah it's interesting that's something that comes right out of rewired in a way um uh, i think she says that and i forget which chapter it is that it's not enough to oh no i'm sorry this is brene brown is who i'm picking up now she says it's not it's not enough to tell your story to somebody you have to tell your story to the right person Mm -hmm. in the right situation and tell it to the person who's really going to get you and who's going to understand better than somebody who is where i was six months ago a year ago 10 years ago Mm -hmm. wherever they are on their journey they started out right where I was sitting right there on that day in this feeling of desperation and sadness and hopelessness, looking for something to cling on to. And they gave it to me. And I tried to do my best to pay that one forward and kind of throw that life ring out to the next group and 
Say, I'm here. Whenever, whenever you need to talk, whenever you need someone to listen, I am always here. And that really means a lot to me to be here and be able to provide mm-hmm. that support that someone else reached out to me in those days. Yep. We said a lot of good things here tonight. Talked about spending time and being okay with being bored, trying new things. It doesn't have to work, but it helps take up that time and it helps you learn about what you like and what you don't like. Finding things to look forward to, to help fill that time, finding another mountain to climb. Looking at situations and recognizing what your needs are and adapting to those, changing the toolbox. That's self-awareness and figuring out what you need to do next. Finding your flaws and talking about them. Shame can't live in the light, just can't. One of those things that we all have experience with here is community. And that's where we've let a lot of that shame go to die. And that's finding a safe place to put that vulnerability. I think inside of all of that, that's where a lot of the magic of the work happens is when you share the thing that hurts and somebody else gets the opportunity to tell you about their experience. You're only ever alone if you never let anyone in. That's the beauty about community. You can start letting people in. Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you, Melissa. And thank you, Dan, for being here tonight, sharing your time with us. We really appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank you. We'd also like to thank our listeners for sharing space with us. Remember to subscribe or follow to keep getting new content. And if you have any comments or topic suggestions, email us at throughtheglassrecovery at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we continue to explore life on the other side of alcohol.